Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. My mind quietened and the negative inner dialogue, which is so dangerous to most of us because it sucks our energy, even in our day-to-day. You know, it's beyond Everest to have a negative inner dialogue. The moment I thought of him, that went all the way from 10 out of 10 to maybe 2 out of 10. Then I got a tap on my shoulder from my Sherpa. And he said to me, we go now. And I said, I cannot go. I'm, I'm staying right here. And then he pulled my face right up to his and he said, we must go. We stay, we die. And I saw this face right up, this weathered skin, big brown eyes. And he just uttered two words. He said, follow me. Hey, it's David, and you're listening to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul, your source for practical leadership inspiration, tools, and strategies you can use to achieve transformational results without sacrificing your humanity or your mind in the process. Welcome to the show today. I am so excited to uh, introduce our guest to you today. Uh, Thank you for making this one of the top leadership podcasts in the world. I encourage you, invite you, like, share, and uh, get those uh, reviews on your favorite streaming platform so that people know and can join the human-centered leadership movement be a part of what you're participating in. So our guest today is one of only a relatively small group of people who have climbed the highest peak on all seven continents of the planet. So these are known as the seven summits, and it's a feat that typically takes years and an enormous amount of planning, training, and effort in some of the most inaccessible places on earth. And our guest today, Vivian James Rigney, was determined to do just that. So Vivian's the president and CEO of Inside Us LLC, an executive coaching consultancy that operates throughout five continents. And he's the author of what we're here to talk about today, Naked at the Knife Edge, What Everest Taught Me About Leadership and the Power of Vulnerability. This is a compelling, heartfelt, uh, nerve-wracking book. I just love it. It is a true account of, of Rigney's experience conquering, climbing Everest, the seventh and final peak on his journey to the seven summits. And it gives us a unique window into lessons on leadership and what it takes to succeed in all kinds of circumstances. Vivian, James Rigney, welcome to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul. Thanks. It's, it's, it's a pleasure to be here. And uh, I like the title, Leadership Without Losing Your Soul. That's, uh, that's very current for, uh, for the times we're in. Well, thank you. And uh, it's uh, that, that human-centered aspect, and it comes through so powerfully and is so at the core of your work and, and what, uh, what you share with us in the book. So eager to get into the book. But before we do, and, and all of your experiences climbing Everest and, and what you learned there, before we do that, though, I'd like to ask you if you could take us back, as far back as you'd like to, to your earliest memory of yourself as a leader. My first real memory of me as a leader was when I was promoted uh, my very first promotion where I, I had people under me that I had to influence and I was in South Africa and I was young I was I think I was 24 years of age and uh, I was sent down there with gusto from my company in Germany US company in Germany and it was a big build-up and I was super excited and I went down there and I remember the recipe up to that point, David, was you work really hard 
and you achieve, you execute. You just focus, listen carefully, apply, and the results always came like a waterfall, one after the other. This time is different. So I was working with our partners and my job was to support them and help them be effective and successful. And after six months, they were rejecting me outright. Weren't inviting me to meetings, weren't engaging with me, mm. were talking, you know, whispering as I'd walk through the office. And I was young at the time and I, I, I turned inwards and I just wondered what the heck is happening. It's this, I, I'll just work harder. So I, I just tried to grind it, grind it out even more and uh, tried to you know, lean in and, and push them even more to bring me out and visit our clients and, and engage. And I got to a point after six months where uh, it was organ rejection. And one afternoon, my boss, uh, we had Friday phone calls and uh, he said to me, how are you doing? I said, I'm doing fine. He said, I'm gonna ask that question again. And I want you to be thoughtful on the answer <laughs> more time. And when I heard that, I said, okay, he's clearly on to me. And I said to him, it's not going well. He said, I know. I said, how long have you known? He said, long enough to hope that you would have told me that yourself. So I felt this sense of um, release. Um, and I said to him, what should I do? And he said, you've got to get close to people. And I said, well, I'm doing both. I'm doing the business plan. I'm doing the people piece. He said, you're not listening to me. I, you, I, I only said people. That's the only thing you need to focus on right now. And I had a very stressful weekend of swirling in my mind. I didn't understand what the heck he meant. I'm, trying, I'm doing it already. Woke up on a Monday morning, went into the offices, called an immediate meeting in the boardroom, sat at the top of the table. Everyone's looking around like, why are we in this meeting? And I said, I've been doing this job for six months and I'm failing. I'm failing in my job. I'm letting you guys down. I'm letting my company down. And I'm definitely letting myself down. And I don't want to continue doing this. Um, and I'm here to ask for your help. Mm. And the moment it was this, I was so exhausted. I was so stuck. I was so lonely. It was breaking point for me. But the moment those words came out of my mouth, uh, something interesting happened, by the way. A third of the room went red, the ones that were busting my chops the hardest because they were like, oh boy, there's re the repercussions from this. <laughs> We've broken this guy. A third were nodding, like, of course we'll help. And a third were looking at the carpet. They were like, who does this vulnerability? This is so <laughs> awkward. I want to climb out the window. But, you know, that second, David, I felt this weight lift off my shoulders. It was almost like everyone's on the same page. And I don't care what happens. If I'm on a flight at 5 p.m. back to Europe, you know what? At least we're clear that I failed. And we're all, I'm talking about it. They're acknowledging it. Of course, that's not what happened. What happened was they responded and they wanted to help me. And at that moment, my brain fused, synapses happened in my brain with it's so much easier to let go of that pressure and engage with people, even though I, my fear was I'd lose face and it would be unrecoverable. People would say, this guy doesn't believe in himself. He doesn't know what he's doing. And now he's saying, but I, I'd, I'd played all the other cards. There was only one card left in the pack and that was to come clean. And it had a profound impact on me. Mm -hmm. And that idea of, and how I grew up in Ireland, in Ireland, um, cultural thing, people are very nice to each other and people want to be too nice to each other. So people avoid direct feedback. So there's always a band-aid. There's always like a, a little bit of grease that's added to squeakiest wheel. And the premise is the, the wheel is squeaky for a reason. It needs to be addressed and 
So that was an awareness on two things, A, to get out of my own way, and B, the cultural impact of the island I grew up on, that that conditioning was totally redundant and actually a huge cost to me at that point in time. It transformed everything. Within 18 months, we doubled our business. I became very popular there. I became popular in, in Ohio with our parent company. What are you doing down there? Your business, my business is growing twofold. Um, but I never forgot the scars and, and, and that bruising, that learning. Uh, and it stayed with me. And it's funny, when I got to Everest, then uh, there's a story in the book, a profound story coming down the mountain, where that, that, that same piece comes to life when I spoke to a family member. You may recall that piece. Um, but yeah, that was leadership. It's a long-winded an answer to your story. Um, but it was very much leadership, I think, is where the individual comes to term with themselves and finds their peace and is centered only then can you be an effective leader, leader of others because people crave authenticity. And if you can't be authentic with yourself, it's not gonna land on the other side and you're missing, there's a delta of potential versus reality. And I, uh, one of the reasons that I invited you specifically to the show, Vivian, was we've been talking at length in different conversations and there is this, in the in the air in the leadership in the business space this conversation around vulnerability and authenticity and, and transparency and the need for it on so many different levels there's the the level of as people are coming to work can they bring their authentic real self to work so from an inclusion and a belonging standpoint we've got that and then there's the leadership aspect of it you just described the weight the stress the the anxiety all of the emotional physical impact that that lack of alignment, that lack of authenticity was costing you. And I know, I've been there myself, I know that there are people listening today who are there now or have been or are going to be tomorrow. And one of the things that, that I think you are able to do through your work very well is tap into how. So it's the why and then the how we can show up with our authentic, vulnerable selves as leaders. Uh, this is a journey you've been on several times through. I mean, you, you in the in the story of climbing Everest, um, this confrontation with yourself that happens again several times. In in fact, it's not a for tapping in, becoming vulnerable and authentic. It's not a one and done kind of a situation. You made that decision as a younger leader then, and you you encountered it more throughout the rest of your life. Correct, and Everest was the great reveal because the, the, what was still under the surface, and South Africa was there, I was very driven and I want to succeed and it's very ambitious, so I want to do well, right? And then I had this moment of, I got to ask for help. But then I just applied it and more achievements, more summits. I ended up doing the seven summits, the highest peak on each continent. I always said I'd never do Everest. That was for the people way more experienced than I. Uh, so there was a certain humility there for sure and ab abject fear because I'm terrified of heights. I, I, I believe you're born with it. I don't get, I don't think you get to choose that one. Uh, I love that you've climbed the seven highest peaks on every continent and yeah. you're afraid of heights. Afraid of heights. And it's just, maybe it's a mental thing of I have to overcome it every time uh, and you can do, but you have to overcome it by making peace with your mind. So it's a, because you have an inner dialogue which goes wild when you, when you see the heights and what's going on. And that's a stretch every single time. But I always thought for, I wouldn't do Everest. And then I ended up getting to having, having achieved the six, 
and then thinking, is it me or the mountain? And I met a guide who was organizing an expedition. I asked him a lot of questions. The annoying thing was he answered all of the questions and he said to me, you've got a lot of experience and you should consider joining and I'd be happy to have you. And I, I signed up and it was this thing in my mind again, I, 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 I really did want to do the seventh. I wanted to get them all done. Um, when I got to Everest and it's naked at the knife edge on summit day, and the book goes into great detail on this, I, I, you know, got that to that moment where I'm asking myself, why am I here? Mm -hmm. Why am I here? Um, because I, I, I just been driving, driving, pushing, pushing. Can you, can you describe that? context for us for those of us who i've seen videos of the knife edge knife edge that that segment but what are we talking about in terms of take us into that moment physically and then we'll talk about that that inner dialogue but uh how high are we what's the terrain like how long have you been doing that what's the yeah context? so everest everest is two months on the mountain so this is one thing for people to know not many people know it's that long so it's like this ultra marathon that goes on for two months it's three rotations. So you take 10 days to get into base camp to, for acclimatization. Base camp is about 16,000, 17,000 feet. So it's, it's about 5,700 meters. It's just, you know, higher than any mountain in the contiguous 50 states or 48 states. And that's base camp. And we're at base camp by five weeks. There's three rotations climb Everest. You go to base camp, you go camp one, camp two, bring equipment up all the way back down to uh, to base camp, and then you wait a week, more training practice, camp one, camp two, camp three, more equipment, all the way back down to base camp. You get down to the valley because you're emaciated after all that time. Um, that's about week five. And then you come back to base camp and you open up the laptops and we start looking at satellites for weather because really there's only a four to six day window on average where you can summit Everest during the year. When the jet stream pulls apart and allows human beings you know, to not be frozen to death, uh, and when the wind abates, and you're going for that tiny, tiny window, and it happens approximately at the end of May every year, uh, and that's what you're going for. So it's almost like a rifle shot all the way to that one piece. You're aiming for the bullseye, and 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 that's yeah, and that's that's what we're that's what we're aiming for. So it's a huge amount of effort. So literally on week six, we're attempting our third rotation, which is our summit bid. And that takes all the way from base camp, all the way through camp one, camp two, camp three, camp four, all the way up to the height of Everest is 29,000 feet, almost 9,000 meters. So um, the last camp is about 28,000 feet. And then we're going for that last thousand, which is incredibly dangerous. It's steep. Uh, there's risk everywhere, risk of avalanche, risk of, um, of falling uh, in many, many places. Uh, all the teams are on one rope and teams going up on one rope and when they reach the summit they're coming down on the same rope and other people are coming up on the same rope so it's it's incredibly comp complex and 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 there is no rescue system at all no helicopters can go that high nothing so you're totally on your own and there's death around you you know there were bodies buried um, from from tragedies of past experiences so it's a, it's a it's a kind of a it's a pressure cooker and you're unconscious, your conscious mind is just focusing on the rope and focusing on one boot in front of the next. But the real story is that 
you're aware of everything that's happening. Your subconscious has absorbed everything. And every boot you take, your, your brain is thinking, don't go up, don't go up. Because of you're in a death zone, it's so dangerous. And that's what makes it extreme, extreme and, climbing. And the, the knife's edge refers to a very narrow crossing? Exactly. So you get to the false summit, uh, which means you get to this kind of look, what looks like a summit, and you get to the top, and then you look directly across, you see what they call Hillary Step. And Hillary Step is this jagged piece of rock with some um, ice, uh, ice overhangs, um, and it's almost vertical, maybe 80 degrees, some places 90 degrees. And people are clambering up like ants in front of you to see this vista. And between where we stand in the false summit to get to Hillary Step, there's a knife edge. And it's maybe 100 yards, 100 meters long. And either side, thousands and thousands of feet. On one side, back to Nepal from where we've come. And on the right side, down to Tibet. Um, and it's, it's wild. And you have to cross the knife edge in order to attempt to get up Hillary Step, which is a vertical, almost vertical, uh, you know, as, a, as, as described, wall. So th there's just compounded danger, compounded of, of compounding of obstacles, and people in trouble left, right, and center, as you see them, having great difficulty trying to, trying to move forward, and indeed trying to move down also in many cases. 80% of the accidents happen on the way down. And so you're on your way up, you're getting ready to cross this knife's edge with the thousand foot drops into either country on, on either side, uh, certainly activating, if it wasn't already, that, that fear of heights. And you start the book by describing the crisis, this inner voice that comes up for you at that moment. You referred to it earlier asking, why are you here? And, and it elaborates <laughs> this moment that you have with yourself. Can you, you tell us about the questions that came up for you in that moment? Yeah, the, the, when I looked at South Summit, when I came to the South, South Summit or the False Summit, I looked at our head guide, Scott, the guy who I mentioned I met in Antarctica a year and a half before, who summited four times. He's leaning against a rock and he's ill. And his, he's, he's ashen-faced, basically murmuring the words, I don't think I can do it this year. I feel awful. That's our head guide. Mm. Our other guide is, is on my, to my right. His eyes are popping out of his head. He looks over. He said, Bill. Or he said, his name is Bill. He said, Vivian, how are you? And I said, not good, not good, no air. And I was overwhelmed when I saw this view in front of me. I wasn't doing well. I wasn't having a good climbing day. I felt as though I wasn't getting enough oxygen through my mask. I was exhausted. I slept two hours uh, each night in the, in the past couple of days. So I wasn't digesting food anymore. So my body was, was, was breaking. And I looked, I just saw this vista and I, uh, yeah, my heart sunk and all the energy was draining away. And I remember thinking to myself, geez, I'm not gonna be able to get up, but the way I feel right now, I can't even go down. I'm done, I'm cooked, this is it. And that dark feeling kind of quickly rose from within me and uh, I remember closing my eyes and I was very emotional because I was thinking, geez, this is it. I'm gonna be like these bodies here. I'm gonna be leaning against this rock frozen for eternity. And that sense of my, 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 my death, my demise was, it was overwhelming. 
And I remember I closed my eyes and I was very emotional and the tears were freezing against my face. And I remember this voice came from deep, deep within me and it was a, a voice I'd never heard before and it said, why are you here? And it repeated, why are you here? You can imagine, not a great time to have voices like this. <laughs> you know, not a great time. If there's ever a time, not here. It was very upsetting. And then the answer came, same voice. Why are you always trying to prove how smart you are, how good you are, how strong you are, how good a you know, son you are, how good a brother you are. And that feeling of total uh, overwhelm. And uh, the answer was, I didn't know. I didn't know why I was there. Mm. I was pushing myself. I wanted my seventh summit. I'd always been successful in things. If I worked hard in the past, and it just meant nothing at that point in time. I felt totally empty, without purpose, on Everest. And I remember closing my eyes, obviously my eyes were closed there, and just going to a place. And in the book I, I explained about a decoy, thinking of something better than me. I lost my brother many years ago in an accident, a car accident, and I remember thinking of him. And the moment I thought of his memory, I, it gave me peace that he was with me. And when I had that feeling of peace, my mind quietened and the negative inner dialogue, which is so dangerous to most of us because it sucks our energy, even in our day to day, you know, to be on Everest to have a negative inner dialogue. The moment I thought of him, that went all the way from 10 out of 10 to maybe two out of 10. Then I got a tap on my shoulder from my Sherpa. And he said to me, we go now. And I said, I cannot go, I'm, I'm staying right here. And then he pulled my face right up to his and he said, we must go, we stay, we die. And I saw this face right up, this weathered skin, big brown eyes. And he just uttered two words. He said, follow me. And I just saw this man had so much fortitude and I just followed him. And where he put his left boot, I put my left boot. Where he put his right boot, I put my right boot. And I went across the knife edge. No recollection of the knife edge, David. No recollection of it. I remember almost coming to halfway up Hillary Step and thinking, Jesus, he's taken me up. I thought he was taking me down. And this, just this shock, but I come all the way back to follow me, followed his boots. And with each boot, we made it to the summit. But that idea of, again, that theme of, he, I didn't ask him for help. He insisted on helping me and I gladly accept it. Mm. And um, that it's funny how life, we have these opportunities where the themes are recurring, albeit in different situations and different formats. And if we just listen to our intuition uh, and also that honesty with ourselves, I think it could free us up so much. But obviously that was a very painful, uh, really scary, wildly scary experience where I thought, it was over for me at 39 years of age. I was, I was done. And that, uh, that fear is, uh, I've never, never experienced anything quite like that. You know, you, you describe that feeling of being stripped bare, uh, in that moment. And one of the elements that you talk about in the book is how, as you're having that inner voice say, why are you here? Why are you doing this? And you don't have a good answer. Then almost the the imposter syndrome or the guilt that kicks in with that, because you, you say, you know, you'd read books about the mountaineering greats who had been there before you and some of them who hadn't made it home. And you mentioned one of them is their body is just a few meters away from you. 
uh, where you're standing, they were so much more experienced and accomplished than you were on the mountain. And in your mind, they all had a clear mind as to why they were there. They had purpose and you felt like an imposter. The, that moment feels so, now I've never been on Everest, obviously. That moment feels so incredibly relatable to me. And I think for so many people that we have those moments of reckoning mm. of whatever got me here, whatever set of those motivations, they don't actually mean the things that I thought they meant. I'm curious, as you've reflected on that experience and, and you're working with leaders all the time, how that informs your leadership, how it informs your work with leaders, what are some of the takeaways for you that have been most meaningful as you reflect on that kind of an experience? Yeah, I think the, the common theme is that leaders are in their heads so much and they forget what that means. They, they end up overthinking, so commonly overthinking. And when they overthink, um, they can over-engineer things. They can, uh, there's, a, there's, there's two ways it can go. They can get leaders who are very impulsive, which means they don't, they don't think enough through steps two, three, and four. It's about step one, because that's important, and it's driving me, and it's almost like a fire drill. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's impulsive, and it's not healthy. And if other leaders, the other end of the scale, where they are uh, overthinking, let me double check that, they're, 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 they're scared of failure. Um, they're very conscious of how they're perceived and very conscious of, and that might be their training, things have to be perfect. Um, I was watching a Netflix documentary on the Challenger disaster. And then right after that, I watched the one on Elon Musk and, and you know, the space program, you know, their rocket program and the different approaches. NASA, every, the mathematics had to be perfect before they would do anything. Uh, the Musk approach was, we'll do our math to a degree and then we're going to try and fail and try and learn from failure and thrive on failure. And you see almost those two extremes, right? The NASA program was wildly expensive and and people were still not necessarily making good decisions with, with, with some of the tragedies that they had. And the other program was, was more risk-taking involved. Um, but but learning as they go and and balancing those two is, those two things is not easy and i think leaders have to find that middle ground where they're listening to their intuition but they're not hijacked by a fear a fear of failure a fear of missing out and and it's really coming back to that place where you can be balanced and i think energy is the one one of the few things we have a we have an absolute finite amount of and if we burn the burn energy, we don't have any more until we recharge, um, and that can lead us to making very bad decisions. So optimizing your energy level, and balancing, and really understanding how your thinking process works and the behaviors that go with the thinking, is what leads to highly effective leadership when when one can get centered on those. We're talking with Vivian James Rigney, author of Naked at the Knife Edge, Whatever's Taught Me About Leadership and the Power of Vulnerability. And, you know, Vivian, as you're talking about managing our energy and uh, in the book, you talk about that combination of analyzing the data, focusing on purpose and using the power of your intuition. 
and, and pulling all of that together as we're making leadership decisions, one of the insights that you talk about in this journey, the two months on the mountain that you had is we're given one body in this life through good and bad ups and downs. There's no trade in possible. It's ours, yet we don't own it or control it. We are custodians. I uh, love that, that insight. And you, say, and you say being honest with yourself means also listening to your body and taking care of it. So from a leadership perspective, let's just camp out there. And then there's an extension, I think, too. So uh, talk a little bit about that insight and how that informs or can inform our leadership. Yeah, fitness and body contributes to fitness and mind. We, we mostly say the opposite, fitness and mind, fitness and body. Um, the most successful leaders, if you see them, they respect fitness. And fitness gives us endorphins. It gives us it gives us a sense of it gives us a sense to balance ourselves. Obviously, the higher the more stressful position, then one has to really balance how we how we how we even find balance with that with time and sleep and so forth. But emotional intelligence, the core of emotional intelligence, the way we feel, shows up in our body first, mm. for our mind, right. And we're educated and trained to think logically and rationally. Unfortunately, that doesn't connect with EQ, emotional intelligence. Emotional intelligence manifests itself through our body. If you ask somebody, where are you feeling the stress? They'll, they'll point in their tummy, in their shoulders, whatever. There's some place where their body is storing that. And I believe that it's the body giving you warning signs. Now that's an extreme, it's giving you a warning sign because it's under stress and it's saying, I, I can't deal with this, you need to take note of this. But if we dial that back, it's where it manifests about, about intuition, about, you know, should I make this decision or that decision? I've just interviewed a person, what does my gut feel tell me? What would about what they've said? All their questions, they've answered, they've given me are logical answers. That all ticks the box. There's something about them. I kind of put my finger on it. We need to. I need to. I need to interview them again. There's something there. I. There's. List, listening to that. This is not about pie in the sky things. This is about a sense. And par if your parents know all about this, right? Because young children can't necessarily communicate what they feel, and parents have to pick up what's really going on. And we kind of think what we do very well at home as parents. We think at the office, oh my God, how could I? That's not a kid. I'm dealing with adults. It's the same thing, the same recipe. What's happening under the surface, the iceberg theory. They're telling you 20% of what they think. 80% they're not sharing because they're scared or there's fear or they can't string the words together. But the fact that they're feeling that has impact on the performance that you want to get out the back end. So it's absolutely worth the effort to reduce that, you know, that almost that water line to find more of the iceberg under the surface and peel the layers back. It's about wild curiosity. It's about being present. It's about active listening in a way where you're not having to judge. You're not having to jump in. You're not having to tell people what you think. Really listening. And it's 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 exponentially more impactful and it creates great a much stronger rapport with the person you're talking to or the audience you're engaging with uh, less 
is more. And it, it seems like this is an intersection taking us back to that early leadership moment that you recounted for us. So if we take this notion that we are custodians of our body, we don't own it, we don't control it, we're custodians. And the same is true. That's a physical reality, but it's the same is true for our teams. It's a metaphor for our teams, for the work that we're doing. We're custodians. We don't own it. We don't control it. We're entrusted with it. And so all of the skills that you were just relaying, the things that as leaders we can do, come back to building the psychological safety, building the empowerment, building the, the conditions that support our team and, and allow for that to happen. And all of that rests on where you started, which is with our own vulnerability. How can we expect people to share that 80, any of that 80% that they may not be able to express or don't feel safe sharing if we're not? Yeah, I was working with an executive team this week, actually, and the executives were high performance, really, really good team, best in class, great leader. And the last two years of COVID, they've all been feeling stress. They all feel a bit burnt out, a lot of expectation on them. And the, the you know, the head of the head of the executive team said, we need to get, go to an offsite. We need We need to center ourselves and figure out we need to get ourselves in a better place and recharge and it's funny at the offsite it was he basically admitted i am overwhelmed i don't have all the answers i feel as though we're you know we're a bit lost compared to where we were two years ago and we need to find our way and the moment he said that every single one of them leaned in and said you serious I thought you were just totally cool with this. And you were just this robot marching ahead, beating the drum, beating the drum. And he said, I've just told you how I feel. And they were blown away by it. Mm. And the, what they came back with, why the heck didn't you tell us that at least a year ago? Because we could have spoken about it collectively. We could have engaged with it. You would have known how we, we didn't know that you were going through that. If you're going through that, then you don't have much time for us. So that makes a whole lot of sense. We thought you didn't care. We thought you were refusing to take on board the fact that we could possibly have been tired or burnt out or, or just overwhelmed. Mm. So it was a massive and immediate realignment because he decided, and obviously it was an offsite and that's our whole purpose is to get people to do that. But he felt, just, I can't keep this facade up for longer. And the word was facade. And we all agreed as a team, this is for the birds, nonsense. Because when I asked one question, for the team that is not here, the 500 people that work for you guys, what do you think they would say about you guys today? Do you think they'd know any of this? Or they think, oh, these guys are just, you know, rock stars and they're all... And they all said, of course they sense we're overwhelmed. Of course they do around the kitchen table at home, they are talking about us left, right, and center. So that idea that we, they could somehow, you know, you know, have this magical wall and no one else would figure it, it's never true. People are way more perceptive than we give them credit for, which leads us to an opportunity of leaning into that and leaning in. So we are overwhelmed. What does that mean? Peeling the layers back on that. What do we do with that? Where's the overwhelm coming from? Overwhelm coming from? How can we help each other? Do we ask for help? What's the culture in our team so we can give ourselves permission to do that? 
What are the rules of engagement? What are the behaviors we need to bring that alive so we can be strong with each other? And on Everest, you know, as you read the book, David, that idea of team, there's so much dependency on each other on that mountain because of the challenges and the obstacles. And also realizing that an individual member of the team can be weak and strong at the same time. Mm. And being able to interpret that, that's where the money is. That's where the opportunity is in, in life and in business. That's the gold is right there. Um, yeah. What a beautiful metaphor in, in the mountain is the metaphor, but in life and in business, you can be weak and you can be strong at the same time. And not only can you, but that's where the gold is. Yeah, that's fantastic. I would love to ask you a little bit about how we can lean into that. You said the leaning into that, because I imagine our listeners right now saying, yeah, that makes so much sense. I get that. And I do struggle with concerns about how I'm perceived. And I hear what you're saying, but boy, it's hard for me to trust that if I admit to overwhelm or admit to not having that answer or or whatever that looks like for, for someone, there is that fear of how they'll be perceived either by their leader or their team or their colleagues. What are some suggestions you have for people to enter into that vulnerability and, and authenticity? Think of it um, like parenting, right? Uh, vulnerability and authenticity is not about sharing everything with you know your whole team in the same way that if you're a parent, you don't share everything with your child. But you know that your ch you make sure your child knows that you love them, that you have their best interest at heart. You make decisions based on what's right and necessary at the time. They absorb that. That's what leadership is. So, you know, and, and children learn through that, that like, life is difficult sometimes. And mom or dad can be, they can be stressed and they cannot know. And they may have to take, to take time to think about things, but they will process and figure it out and they will handle what needs to be handled. Good parenting is about sharing that with your children so they absorb that and take that on board. That life is not a panacea of perfection or aspiration or dreams or social media, you know, nirvana, you know, uh, daisies and daffodils. It's, it's, it's rough sometimes. And the character is built on how we navigate through that with question marks. Question marks are healthy. Question marks of ourselves are healthy. And if we learn from that and grow from that, we become stronger, our center becomes stronger. And it is one roller coaster life, but it's beautiful and it's precious. And I think this idea of what we do at home or with people close to us can be equally applied whether we're leading 5,000 people or 500,000 people. And, and, and that simple premise, it's about measurement, but people are perceptive beyond what we give them credit for. So if they're perceiving that, we're, that we don't know what we're doing or we're stuck or whatever, it's so much easier to, um, to um, to share that sentiment, perhaps without all the detail, but to share that sentiment with a purpose about how we are going to resolve. This is a difficult time. This is a challenging time. 
we are really trying to navigate it. And through the pandemic, if we look at, you know, 2020, a lot of companies were were faced with that and, and, and huge levels of discomfort because there was no simply no option to sweep anything under the carpet. It was happening whether you thought it or not. And we learned an immediate ability to lean in to the unknown. And if we could only harness that and remember that and incorporate that into how we how we deal with things and challenges, it's extremely healthy. It's like the blood that goes through all parts of the body. The blood brings life. The honesty brings life. Um, and just remem- remembering that in a measured way, of course, but, but, but the blood has to get to every part of the body for the body to be alive. It's a metaphor I'm talking about here. And the same thing as a leader. You have to be real with people because they're, they're judging you already. And so our tips, as I'm summarizing, for being real, for stepping into that authenticity, transparency. So one, starting from a place of love and compassion for your people and your team. I, and I'd throw yourself in that equation as well. But so coming from a place of love, coming from a place of their best interest at heart, uh, defining the emotional reality. You said, you know, this is a challenging time. We don't have to get into all the details. I don't have to explain everything. This can feel overwhelming. I feel overwhelmed. If you're feeling overwhelmed, this is where we are right now, if that's the, the reality, whatever that looks like for you and your team. And then I also heard confidence in the team. And together, we are going to address this. We're going to find our way forward together and inviting everyone into that shared space of facing it together. We're talking with Vivian James Rigney, Naked at the Knife's Edge, Whatever's Taught Me About Leadership and the Power of Vulnerability. Vivian, we are running short on time, but I would love if you could tell us, and I've got one or two more questions to wrap up here, but I'd love if you could tell us where we can connect with you, find the book, find out more about the work that you're doing. Where do we find you? You can find me on uh, Vivian James Rigney, all one word, dot com. That's simple. It's a website with, uh, that's the easiest way to access me. In the book, you can get it in many bookstores, uh, certainly online, obviously very easily through different channels. Independent bookstores, I always say support them as much as possible, but you can also get it on Amazon and all the big ones. I do the, obviously we have the book. I have an audio book, which is really interesting. So if you want something totally different, go to the audio book. I had to read my own story, which I'd never done in my life. It felt bizarre. And I felt emotions coming when I'm reading the story on Everest. So that's a different dimension of reading Naked of the Knife Edge to actually listen to the audiobook because I'm reliving it as I do it. Um, I do keynotes for people, obviously, leaders at, at scale. And I do executive workshops, as I described, and executive coaching. So that's what I do in the day job. And uh, hopefully this somehow ties together. Fantastic. Well, uh, listeners, I really encourage you to pick up a copy of, of Naked. Uh, it is, uh, you know, by the knife edge there, it is incredibly powerful. That emotion that Vivian's describing in the audiobook version, whether you read or listen, uh, I will tell you that, so I'm a reader, I tend to, to read books primarily, and several times reading this book, I had to set it down because Vivian did such an incredible job of describing the realities, and I don't have the same fear of heights, but Oh boy, I started to get some there as you're describing some of those scenarios. And so the, just the adventure aspect, it is a fantastic story. But then also 
the moments we've been talking about of the transparency, the authenticity, the vulnerability, uh, several times as I was reading this book, uh, I had the tears welling up in my eyes. Uh, at the, so it is no surprise to me that reading that story yourself, you would have that experience. It's incredibly compelling and an emotional experience. Uh, and one I definitely would recommend to anyone who loves a good athletic or adventure story, but also who loves leadership. You've got a, several different audiences here. Okay, so as we are wrapping up here, we got to come down the mountain. And so many applications here, but as you're describing coming down the mountain, for all the glory or achievement of summiting that we might experience or think about or imagine, if that's not something we've done, coming down the mountain can be brutal. Uh, it, it can be really tough. And your experience on Everest seems to have had some of that for you as, as you were coming down thinking, oh my word. And, and then you talk about the, the physical impacts afterwards, frostbite that took a month to heal, stomach bug that took a month, three months to regain the weight that you'd lost, and your memory suffered for six months to some extent from the, the oxygen deprivation. All of that from a leadership perspective reminds me that there are real consequences Achievements and the work that we're doing doesn't come without a cost necessarily. And I'm, I'm curious, as you reflect on all of that experience, how you evaluate which consequences in life you want to experience, and as leaders, how you encourage leaders to make some of those decisions. It's really appreciating what we have right now, which is where it's at. Um, one can chase aspiration, one can chase ambition, and that's fine. But if we're like the proverbial donkey chasing the carrot on a stick, we never really get there because it's never enough. If I get that job, I'll be fulfilled and happy. We get that job, it's like, well, if I just become the regional guy, then that'll be, that'll be great because I've done this one, we get the regional job. Well, if I come to the global and so forth and so forth, if we don't have that honesty within us, um, we, we lose track of what we're really, that purpose of what we're doing. Um, two things I respect a lot from coming down from Everest. The first thing is a glass of water, because Everest is a desert. There is no water. There's snow which you have to melt, which takes a lot of energy. You cannot just pick up a handful of snow or ice. Your mouth freezes. It's not possible. So just appreciating a glass of water and air, filling my lungs with air. I'm at sea level here. I'm in New York City. Just every day that feeling of air. I have air on my lungs. I can have a glass of water. Everything else is a bonus on top of that. And I think that humility of just appreciating, I have my health, I have my water, I have my oxygen. Uh, that peace is a starting point. Everything else comes after that. And it's so important uh, to be the lamp and not the moth. Moth is flying around the lamp, flying around and flying around. That's what I was as I articulated that story in South Africa. And once, once we become the moth, it gives us a sense that we really are genuinely leaving a legacy. Whatever happens to us, if I get struck by lightning tomorrow, um, I will leave a legacy. The legacy will be hopefully moving people um, in a way that they will remember how I made them feel. And I think. For me, that, that is kind of the life's worth of, of hopefully most people. Uh, they don't want to be remembered for how much money they earned or how successful they were or even how many mountains they climbed. They want to be remembered for how 
they made others feel whether that's family a partner um, yeah in, in its simplest form stepping in becoming the light Trans I love that metaphor I haven't heard that one or do you want to be the moth or the, the lamp and the lamp casting the light the attractive force and that leaving that positive influence and legacy Oh, this has been such a fulfilling conversation, Vivian. Thank you for being here with us. Uh, I really do appreciate your time and sharing your experience and, and helping each of us to step into that vulnerability, uh, that authenticity that is healthier for us and healthier and more impactful for our leadership. Thank you so much. You're more than welcome. It's been a real pleasure to be here and thanks for the great questions. Oh, absolutely. Well, that is uh, today's episode. Thank you so much again, Vivian. And uh, listeners, encourage you to uh, step into your own vulnerability using some of the suggestions that Vivian shared with us uh, on your journey from moth to lamp and be the leader you'd want your boss to be. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.